Big Talk. Plan B. <laughs> Where shall we start, Rebecca? <laughs> I'm interested in this Marikana timing, John, because as Leanne was reading on the news, there was that understanding that President Zuma would give 48 hours notice. Why do you think it is that he's now sprung this on the nation? Bashir, to divert attention, that's the obvious answer. Is, is there another less obvious but more interesting answer? Not more interesting, but I suppose the only other theory really is just that those comments he made off the cuff at the university the other day when somebody heckled him in the crowd yeah. and he seemed to defend the murder of Marikana, perhaps the sort of PR crisis around that may have sent his handlers scrambling for him to to bring it forward. But there was not much of a PR crisis about it. As crises affecting the Zuma presidency go, that was a relatively muted one. No, that's true. The, the, the other suggestion I've seen is just you know, the very vague, to keep your enemies on the back foot. So you just, you know, get a march ahead of them so nobody has time to, I don't know, do what march or stage of protest or whatever, which I suppose is vaguely plausible as well. But there is, in what you said, uh, another little point of some importance to be made. There was a commitment to the North Gauteng High Court, Mm. that hotbed of counter-revolutionaries, that 48 hours notice would be given. So there's another small example of an agreement with a court being ignored. That's true, John. That is a depressing thought. Um, We've also just heard that the report is 600 pages long so I'm really hoping that Mr. President is not intending to read it all and perhaps just some sort of executive summary or that'll fill your broadcasting rotor for the for the night I'd say. Yeah and and your quick response to Mkuseni Apleni's affidavit which I know you've also read. Uh, I mean just the whole John. So as you said we all understand that VIPs, dignitaries, do not go through the same layman's process we do when we queue and give our passports. I, I did that once. It was fantastic. I was a VIP guest of the Seychelles government. I was going there to interview the president, Michel. And so I got off the plane and instead of going into the building where everybody else, I was taken off to somewhere and offered croissants and coffee and somebody came and fetched my passport and brought it back to me stamped. And it was the same thing when I went out. No queues. It was lovely. And you never I got checked by it. any form of... No. Nah. So, I mean, aren't these people smuggling loads of drugs? That was my immediate, immediate thing. No one's ever checking you at any point of this process. I did have more bottles of wine with me. Than <laughs> oh, John, you renegade! <laughs> but that was all. That was um, all. So the notion, the notion that the Sudanese delegation arrives at Waterkloof and hands over the passports and the, the, the officials are just like, oh, well, Bashir's not here, but I, I, he must be following. I mean, it's just absurd. Why would you not immediately think, where is the president? Well, how, how is it possible that, that you just accept that the whole Sudanese delegation's leaving? Oh, but the president's passport isn't here. Oh, well, he must just be following them. I mean, it, who would believe that? Or you'd ask a question. You would ask a question. I, I noticed the president's passport isn't here. Um, perhaps you've forgotten. Perhaps it's in his suit pocket. Would you go and check it for us, please? Because surely he's leaving with you. Right. And as other people have pointed out, we've been told repeatedly that Watercliffe is this national key point. It's, you know, security of the highest order. Isn't it alarming that by their own version, someone can sneak onto a plane without anyone noticing? I mean, you know, it seems to open up the government to, to, to attacks on a number of other fronts this this affidavit. All right. Well, let's. <laughs> you've spent, as you spend quite a lot of time in Parliament these days when it is in session, and you talk of an interesting moment this morning. There was quite an interesting moment this morning. Parliament's about to, to close, by the way. It's going into recess. I mean, they. 
are barely in recess, it seems to me, but they're going into recess at the end of this week. So we're just rounding off a few committees. And this morning there was the meeting of the ad hoc joint committee on uh, probing violence against foreign nationals. I can't remember. It's got a long, cumbersome, full title. Um, it's set up basically to look into the causes of the xenophobic violence that we saw earlier this year and to suggest solutions. And you may remember that we actually had an identical task team set up in 2008, which didn't really seem to produce any results. But we live in hope, John. We live in hope that this will be different. But so it's a 20-member committee, and it's only met three times. And today there was some very vague sort of discussions about programming and so forth. And then this ANC MP, um, Zefroma Dlamini Dubuzana, puts her hand up and she's, she says, I may be out of order, she says tentatively. And then she suggests that it was critical that the committee go and call upon King Goodwill's Zuelatini. And obviously the reason she suggested this was because of those comments that King Goodwill made in March where he said that foreigners should pack their bags and go. And that is literally what he said. If you don't believe it, you can Google it and see the video with a direct translation on the ENCA website. And um, it wasn't like she was saying, let's go call on the king and make him account for what he said and take responsibility. She or was even just more daringly say, let's insist the king come here to us to account. <laughs> yes, right. No, goodness, of course not. She was just saying, let's go and let him explain himself. What did he, had he seen that, that led him to these conclusions? So it was hardly a very daring statement. John, the atmosphere in that room just froze. And then there were the succession, MP after MP, just giving reasons why the committee could not under any circumstances go and see the king that it would be um, unwise, that it would be a bit difficult, that maybe they should rather speak to somebody the king would send, that maybe they should rather speak to the chiefs, that there's, it's a very sensitive matter. And uh, my favourite, which was from the IP's, IFP's Alfred Mango, who said it wouldn't be advisable to meet with the king because it would give credence to the idea that the king had said what the king said, which we know is actually what the king said. So they couldn't do it at all. He said the committee wouldn't get a warm welcome. So as a result, you know, they completely scrapped this idea and the committee chair was like, can you imagine the Queen of England being called to account to a parliamentary committee, which I also thought was an interesting analogy because, of course, Prince Charles has, in fact, been subjected to a lot of parliamentary scrutiny. Um, so, yes, this committee is going to talk to all sorts of people involved with the violence, John. Anyone from migrants to spaza shop owners to people in sectors where migrants are supposedly stealing jobs, but it will not talk to the man who many people think was actually responsible for inciting the violence because that would be a cultural transgression. And there is an election coming up next year and increasingly the ANC's support base is rural and traditional conservative, which explains why the traditional leader's salary bill has ballooned to 407 million rand, why traditional leaders, headmen, have been granted a 28 percent salary increase that's right I mean, I mean, which is something that i've been you know it's something i've been sitting on all week i, I never know how to do these things because I, I i think that traditional leaders are an absurdity and an incongruity just ridiculous in 2015 but i accept that our constitution and that people in who live in our country feel differently about this mm. from the way I do and I do think we must try and find some way of combining a traditional way of life with a modern way of mm. life. It is but, difficult and it's but difficult. 28% how do you read that as anything other than um, we you're on side? Right I think it's all yeah I think it's very difficult to have these conversations John actually particularly as you know white English-speaking people 
to discuss matters about which we'd probably be accused of knowing very little, which I think is true. It was also telling that in this committee today, at various points, the committee members broke into Zulu. And it was very clear, John, that they were doing that because it was evident that the journalists in the room were not Zulu speaking. And it was a kind of code. And I mean, you know, they're well within their rights to do that. It's a majority language of the country. And it's just an incentive for the rest of us to learn Zulu. But I thought that was also quite revealing. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know if you heard Stephen Friedman's interview with me yesterday or read the column in Business Day, I think it was last week, which uttered the same sentiments that the real villain in this al-Bashir saga is the South African Litigation Centre and other NGOs, which he said persist in bringing applications to the courts in it, for the courts to insist that unenforceable laws be enforced and that mm. his, his view is that what the SL, SALC has done by getting the court to say arrest Bashir, which is impossible to do in, in the real world, mm. that that produces contempt for law rather than the government ignoring the court's edict. And the South African Litigation Centre is a bit in the spotlight as well. I mean, people who have leapt, mm. people who are opposed to the court interdict, to the, the approach to the courts, are leaping upon the fact that they're part funded by the US. You know, I've been thinking about this, John, and you know... <laughs> It, it, doesn't it produce a little bit of discomfort? I'm not saying, I don't I think it's from what I know of the SALC, I think it sounds like they do amazing work. But when you think about it, to have a, an NGO whose primary purpose is to bring litigation in a lot of cases against the governments of Southern African countries, which is funded in part by the US government, doesn't that produce a prickle of unease when you think about it? It does, but the prickle of unease is, is reduced by the knowledge that where else would they get the funding from? They're not going to get the funder funding from African governments. They're not going to get the money from South African corporates because South African corporates are too scared to fund something like that. Mm. So European or American funding is essentially the only route of funding they have. That's right. And the other option is that they would get it from one of these huge philanthropic funds, right? And actually, there's a few huge funds which fund, I'm using the word fund an awful lot in this sentence, but which fund, you know, a huge amount of the NGO industry in this country, such as the Ford Foundation, for instance, and such as the Open Society. Those two alone, I mean, have a huge part of the South African NGO market cornered in funding. And you know, the Ford Foundation, for instance, fun, funds projects to do with accountability, freedom of expression, racial justice, all things that I think most right-minded people couldn't quibble with. But then again, they also fund um, pro-abortion groups, for instance. And um, Well, Henry Ford was not the most enlightened man in history. <laughs> My point is just, you know, I like these groups. I like George Soros because he's also a liberal and the Open Society funds these very liberal things because they're their agenda happens to dovetail with mine very neatly in terms of, you know, progressive liberal lefty views. But I wonder how I'd feel if, if you know, the Koch brothers, for instance, were funding South African NGOs. You know, I think I'd feel very differently. It just so happens that I think these views are, you know, unambiguously correct when it comes to how you see the world. But there's little doubt that these, that you mean, I mean, the, the Open Society Foundation, which is one of... Um, the, the South African Litigation Centre's funders, for instance, as the Ford Foundation, has been accused of trying to affect regime change yeah. in various places because, you know, they do ha have an extraordinary amount of power when it comes to, to, to giving funding. They, for instance, were funding the groups that incited the Ferguson revolts in the US, which, you know, in conservative quarters was taken as an act of, you know, sort of real incitement. 
it is interesting to think about the what would a neutral source of funding for NGOs be? I'm just so grateful that anyone funds NGOs. Yeah. But um, as you say, it's not like South African corporates or or other funds are, are scrambling to give to give us money. And Rebecca, why do you think that Google's rolling out of a proper unsend email function is the best news of the year? Is, is there an email disaster or two <laughs> lurking in Rebecca Davis's recent history? There actually isn't, John, but is it not self-evidently true that Goog- the fact that Google's rolling out an unsend email function is probably the best news of the year? Do you have you've never experienced that moment of sheer panic, that flush of horror as you realize you have either pressed reply all to something that was specifically meant only for one person's eyes I've never or done that, just thank wrongly goodness. never done that no what's happened sometimes i don't do it anymore because i've got more i've got more relaxed about criticism of what i do on the radio but there were times when i get an email from somebody who's who's so antediluvian so stuck in a cave of 50 billion years ago that before I could stop myself, I'd written something incendiary in an email and pressed send. And I've gone, oh, no, <laughs> you just sunk to their level. You fool. Why did you do that? Right. That's the other thing, that you send, you, you have directed emails to the right people, but they have been tossed off in great haste and instantly regretted. I mean, it just sounds like such a good system that it'll hang onto your email, all emails you send for something like 30 seconds. And then if you haven't told Is that all? Works, I, haven't, I haven't looked at the system much. Is that all, 30 I, seconds? I think it's, it's a small period, but it will hang but on I mean, to all But I mean, in them. terms of the times when I would have liked that available to me, I've, I've made that decision within 30 seconds. Right, that's I what have. I feel as well. And also you almost instantly realize when you've sent it to the wrong person for some reason. Yeah. So folks, if there's anybody out there <laughs> with a story... These always are embarrassing stories, so you might not particularly want to share one. But if there is an, oh, my goodness, I remember a case of two years ago, 18 months ago last year, yesterday, when that function would have come in incredibly handy, and you're brave enough to share it with us, then call us on 021-446-0567. Do you twerk? I don't. I don't habitually, John. But you have been known to. <laughs> there have been periods at half past three in the morning where you have Perhaps and wished that there bash. was an unsent function <laughs> yeah, for on that. My twerk. Who would have thought that the word goes back to 1820? I was very surprised to, to hear that. Yeah. This, folks, is the Oxford English Dictionary, which every year publishes new words that are going in. And people thought twerk would be a new word. And they said, well, actually, it's a word that's been around since 1820. It was first spelt twerk and referred then to a twisting or jerking movement or twitch, which mm. is exactly what Miley Cyrus does. That's fascinating. The, the, the word on that list that interested me the most, John, was gimmick. To mean a night out with friends. Oh, because I've, I've never heard it in that. And I was going to ask you because mm. you're much more contemporary than I, I asked friends in both Britain and the US because I thought maybe it was an Americanism and neither of them had heard of it. But perhaps we're just getting a bit long in the tooth. John, maybe it's a uh, piece John, of youth slang. gimmick? A night out with friends? No. Mm-mm. Stefan, gimmick? A night out with friends? Um, Lethal Pointless coming to you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you're from Mpumalanga. You, know. <laughs> you don't have, you don't gimmick in Mpumalanga. <laughs> Maybe you've learned gimmicking since coming to Cape Town. Cisgender, designating a person whose sense of personal identity matches their gender at birth. Fair enough. Gorilla, describing activities carried out in an irregular and spontaneous way. I'm surprised that's going in now because yes. gorilla marketing and stuff's been around for a very long time. Uh, Twitterati, yep. Uh, for shizzle is, again, Siafan's uh, got both thing, both thumbs up. He's he, he's always saying for shizzle. Mm. Thank goodness never to me because he knows that that would lead to limited career prospects. <laughs> Do <laughs> you very, say it? He's very down with it, is Stefan. Yeah. I said it. I can't picture those spells coming out of my mouth in succession, but perhaps at the same time Sean? that I've been twerking. Uh, have you said? 
Maybe facetiously. <laughs> Uh-oh. Maybe, maybe. For also, maybe not facetiously. <laughs> Rebecca, thank you very, very thank much. Thank you, John.